0: Happy Mother's Day. <clears throat> it's good to have you here if you're a mom. Um, we know a lot of people are out of town visiting their moms. Um, if you are a mom, by the way, I hope you saw the coffee and the chocolate on the way in. Feel free to avail yourself of those things and as much as you can carry. Um, just a small way that we could say thank you um, for all the hard work you do. Honestly, if we bought you a chocolate factory, it would not be enough payment and enough of a, of a sentiment or a Just a thank you for what you do that's unseen. We know being a mom is largely thankless. Um, So we just wanted to say thank you in a very small way. And and listen, I told Charlie this week that Mom's Day can be a bit treacherous for a pastor, a little bit of a minefield, because it's not a great day for everybody. Um, I know that there are a lot of people that try to have babies and cannot have babies. And so it's a wound. And days like today kind of rub a little salt in the wound. Um, for others, mom, just being a mother, it's full of trials. And they look around and they feel like failures. Uh, that Genesis 3 kind of speaks to this a little bit when God says that the pain in childbirth will be multiplied. I think that extends past the delivery room. Um, as your kids grow, that just the, the pains can also change shape and they can grow with the kids sometimes. Also, a lot of people today that are going to pick up the phone and call mom or text mom. Those are going to be hard for some people. In fact, it's just going to ampli- amplify how, how broken things are. So it's, it's difficult some days, and this day particularly. And I'd just like to say, if that's you, I'm sorry. That's a special kind of suffering. Um, here, here's my advice for you today, if that's you. Avoid social media. <laughs> At all costs, do not open up any of your apps because everyone is having a perfect Mother's Day. All right? I'm not against displaying your perfect Mother's Day, but if this is a sad day for you or a bitter day for you, you will see zero average Mother's Days displayed on Facebook and Instagram. They will all be spectacular. All of them will. And it can maybe communicate to you that you've been ripped off. And so avoid that. Just a small little bit of advice. And and I also hope that today's passage can be helpful for you because it reveals another woman who's been ripped off. She feels ripped off anyway even if it's just from God himself. And so what we're going to do is a prequel. Um, We've been working through the story of David, and we're actually not going to stop that. We're going to stay in our series, but I've been tucking this sermon away for a while. We're going to go back to chapter 1 where we look at Hannah, okay? So this is before David even shows up, and we've been focusing on David and Jonathan the last few weeks. But Hannah, just to maybe build the context before we jump into the passage, that's Samuel's mother, okay, Samuel's mother, and Samuel, just to remind you, we already looked, took a pretty good look at him. He is God's man. He is God's prophet who anointed David for kingship when David was just a shepherd boy. Samuel's probably one of the most influential people in human history because he establishes a kingly line that actually culminates in the person of Jesus, one of the biggest storylines in your Bible and one of the biggest reflectors of gospel truth. So, he's not, he's not a small figure at all. But the story actually begins with a mom in deep anguish. That's where it starts for us. She's in a tough marriage. She feels excluded, socially invisible. She's in pain. She feels worthless. She needs a lot of chocolate. She's the one that needs chocolate, right? She needs a card, a car to hug. And listen, if you're a man today, by the way, this passage is going to pinpoint struggles that you have as well, maybe even this week. Hannah has led me well this week. I've been focused and meditating on this passage every single day. You've probably wondered this week if you're a guy, if you have what it takes in this world, if you're enough, or if you can't bring anything to the table except for failure. You've probably wondered this week if you have what it takes, if you have value, if you have worth, if you're a man of consequence living a, a life of purpose. See, Hannah's struggle is not a woman's struggle. Hannah's struggle is humanity's struggle. She has anguish, but that anguish is actually my anguish a lot of times. I share this with her, and I think everyone in the room does as well. So what I'd love to do is just jump into chapter 1, verse 3, and read a few verses at a time to maybe paint a bigger picture of what I'm talking about. And if you did not bring a Bible with you, this will be on the screen it hit me when I was walking up here. I'm going to be reading this out of the NIV. It's going to be ESV up here. This is the Bible that my mom gave me when I was in high school. I preach from it every Mother's Day, and so <clears throat> this is not going to be the, what match word for word what you see up there. But First Samuel one verse three, the Lord says this year after year this man and this man by the way his name is Elkanah. Okay, year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Okay, let's pause. Peninnah here is not very helpful, right? Not very helpful. But we're going to find out why later on. And you might actually have more compassion for her whenever you find out why she's likely doing what she's doing. But in this moment, she's mocking the empty womb of Hannah. Now, as a younger Bible student, when I was fresh in the Lord, reading through this passage, and I actually still have all the original notes from whenever I was in my early 20s on this, and as I read them, I realized I was a little bit aloof to what Hannah's struggles were, and I just thought she could walk it off. Walk it off. It's a little bit of mockery. What's the big deal? I mean, it's, you know, words, sticks and stones, that whole thing. I don't know what the big deal is right now, but, but it is a big deal. This culture, and this is why, this culture is all about making babies. All about it, right? Value for a woman increased according to how many kids she could have. And it makes sense back then, but today it doesn't as much. It seems, it's seemingly reversed today when it comes to the value of being a mother. Childbearing right now is something that doesn't bring value, but for a lot of young women it erases it. It takes it away. And why? Because our values have moved. Our values have moved. The goalposts have moved around as everything shifts. In fact, this is why some countries are shrinking, by the way. Japan is shrinking. Italy is shrinking. I don't know if you read the news, but the Pope was just in Italy this last week. And it was interesting that he was speaking about what he calls a demographic winter because they're a shrinking country. And he was kind of, I don't want, I don't want to say shaming them, but he was admonishing the people of Italy because they were having more pets than kids. And he says, you're destroying your country. You're destroying the future of your country. And it's not just in Europe or in some of the Asian nations. Our birth rate here in America has been dropping for 50 years. It's been plummeting for the last 20 years, plummeting, because our cultural values have changed. It's not kids as much as independence, freedom, earning potential. And what it does to a passage like this, if we're not careful, is it makes it disposable, right? It makes it is a little bit nonsensical. But it's important to know that in this culture, children brought wealth to a family for sure, but security to a family, largely, right? There was no social security back then, no retirement villages to, to end your days comfortably. If you wanted a life of safety as an elderly person, you were, you were dependent on how your kids handled you, right? And this is especially true if you are a woman. No kids, no safety, which might color in the lines a little bit of why Jesus would say from the cross to John, hey, take care of my mom. Take care of my mom. You see, kids were how family trades grew. A bunch of kids was virtually the same thing as having a bunch of employees, right? If you wanted your, your, your candle shop business or your farm or whatever to grow, it meant having a bunch of kids. So there was safety and security in the family unit, and there was also safety and security in the national unit. This is how militaries were built was by people who had a lot of kids. And then there's just the joy of having kids hugging and kissing and laughing and just the memories you build. All of this to say that Paninna would have been a bit of a rock star in her culture, a bit of a hero. She'd have got chocolate bars every day. But to have a closed womb was to be worthless. And for year after year after year, Paninna would look at Hannah and say, virtually, you have no value. You're worthless. You have no worth. There's nothing to you. I think Tim Keller rightly says that every culture has a panina. I think he's right. Because there's something that every culture holds up and says, with this, you are enough. Without this, you're not enough. Right? And it's important to know that there's no such thing as a culture without values. Every culture has values. And every culture has subcultures and even subcultures within that subculture, and those values might be distinctive, right? For instance, we're in the West, the modern West, but we're also in America, which is different than other Western countries. Our culture's different, right? Generation Z has a culture. It's different than Generation X, right? It's different. Even Generation Z that lives in Nebraska has a different cultural value system set up than Generation Z that lives in Cuba, or Guam or New York or someplace like that. Every single culture has something that it holds up and says, you are enough. If you can secure this, if you could get this, if you can be this, if you can have this, you are enough. Whether it's career, looks, reputation, education, earning potential, family, kids that are good at something, you are enough. And this is what we are good at as people. We're good at walking in a room, no matter what the room is, sensing what the culture is, and being able to spot what is the good and the bad of that culture. We're very good at that. We're quick. And whenever we see what the good of that culture is, even if it's a church culture, whenever we see what the good is, we never feel like we're very close to it, right? We always feel like we're oh so far away from whatever it is that is valuable in this people group. And what it tells us is we're not enough. We're not valuable. We're worthless. And we hear this year after a year, after a year. You can start to understand Hannah a little bit more now, right? I mean, it starts to kind of crawl off the page, I mean, more than at least first glance. And this is why I love the Bible's versatility. I mean, it swings just as hard in 2023 as it did back then in the Old Testament. It swings just as hard for us. Hannah is battered from years of being taunted and feeling worthless, and so it takes a toll on her to the point where she stops eating. Did you catch that? She stops eating. I mean, let's look at this again. I'm going to read. I'm going to go back to verse 7. No, let's just, just do verse 8. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Some of your Bibles say she rose. And now Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Okay, let's pause there. Elkanah, um, he turns into a little bit of a sitcom dad here, right? The sitcom dad is the guy that's a little bit of a goof. He's usually the dumbest guy in the room. He's usually the plucky comic relief. And here he says, hey, hey, you shouldn't be sad, wait for it now, because you have me. Happy Mother's Day. I'm great, and you're lucky because you're married to me, right? What do you think about that, ladies? Does that hit the mark for you? Nah, I mean, he's, he's trying. He's, this is, it is somewhat of a noble try. He's basically saying she makes babies. She makes babies. She's bringing security to the family, but she's of utility. You have my heart. You are the one I love. Can we just talk about polygamy for a moment? Because it's here. (laughs) It's here. There's no getting around it. I will say just first and foremost, this is something we see described in the Bible, but is by no means prescribed in the Bible. Polygamy in the Bible, the reason that's important is because it's been weaponized by a lot of people who hate God, who hate the church. I mean, as if society without God has a sexual ethic to, to lean on that's of any good, but they do and they say, hey, listen, this is a problem with the church. And the reason they say that is because it's present in the Bible and they conflate that with endorsement. If it's in the Bible, then that means God is excited about it. The truth is, is nowhere do we see polygamy endorsed. We don't see it. In fact, every time, and this is true, every time we see polygamy shown and displayed in the Bible, everybody's miserable. Like, it's not working for anybody. Not even the guy. It doesn't work for anyone. And this is exhibit A, a passage like this. I mean, Peninnah, she doesn't have the deepest affections of her husband. You You don't think she caught on to that? I mean, Hannah's over here getting twice as much food. (laughs) How long do you think that took for her to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, I don't think he loves me. Man, so she pulls the only lever she has. I have kids. I have kids. I mean, that mocking, I wonder. I don't know. We don't have a lot of evidence here, so I'm submitting this. I'm not really teaching this. I'm wondering if she's just herself coming out of a place of anguish, right? Who knows? But we do have Hannah. Again, we don't have evidence for this, but I wonder, year after year of being taunted, you don't think she had a bad day and swung back? You don't think that she had a a short wick one day and said, oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, Peninnah, he doesn't even love you. You have Mother's Day. I have Valentine's Day. He does not love you. I wonder. I mean, it's toxic. We do know this. Elkanah is telling one wife he loves her more. (laughs) He brings this on himself because he wanted more kids. That meant having more wives. Why does he want more kids? It's more money. It's more security. It's more wealth. It's more legacy and empire to build. That's why he wants it. But I mean, man, we do dumb things to make more money today still, don't we? We still do stuff like that. You see, polygamy will reappear in the life of David. We'll see him doing it. We'll see it in the life of Solomon. Listen, 700, 700 wives, we see this in the Bible, and we have to know it's not God's best. Your Bible does not hide the sin of mankind. It doesn't cover it up. It doesn't try to restate it in a way that's not very ugly. It's incredibly honest. And it's, it's honest with the destruction that sin brings, and it's equally honest with the remedy that comes to you and me because of this destruction, right? Which we'll get into in here in just a moment. But I think it's also important before I hop out of this some theologians, and I agree with them, have wisely, I think, noted that Hannah is actually feeling a second pressure, not just a pressure to secure culture's idea of what's valuable, but also to find it in the affections of another person, in this case, her husband, right? Something has to tell her that she is enough. Culture says it's not working for her, but her husband's saying, you are enough, and that is another pressure, and we hear it as well, Right? It might be your kids, your kids' success, your career, your influence that says, with this, you are enough. But we could equally have people around us that say, with me, you are enough. With me, you are enough. And that's all we want, right, is to be enough. All of us just want to be valuable, want to have some worth. Hannah can't find it. And most of us can't either, right? Right? So here we find Hannah in a broken marriage with a broken womb and a broken soul. And she finds herself in bitter weeping, saying, Lord, if you give me a son, I'll give him to you. Now, it kind of sounds like she's negotiating right here, doesn't it? Haven't we all done that? I think I, I was thinking about, I think I spent half my college time forming prayers out of this, if you get me out of this jam, fill in the blank, right? Lord, if you get me out of this jam, I will go to church for Okay, three times this month, if you get me out of this jam, I'll take notes one of those times, and I will not be late none of those times, but at least I will be there, right? If you get me out of this jam. And that's a negotiation, but that's not really what she's doing here. What she's saying is, is if you give me a son, I'll make him a Nazarite, which means I'm going to give him right back up. This is what's interesting. To be a Nazarite means you're not going to have some things. One of them, as we read, is a razor. You don't get a razor not going to cut your hair. Another thing is alcohol. That's gone as well. Here's another big thing you lose, family rhythms. You lose family. These fellas, they lived in the temple as Levites, trained and raised by Levites to service the temple and God's people. Here's what they did not do. They did not work in the family business. They did not work on the farm with mom and dad. They did not serve on the military. They didn't even grow up at home. That's the life that she was going to provide for her son, Hannah effectively prayed for a kid she wouldn't even get to keep. Does that sound familiar? It should. You see, even with a son, culture wouldn't celebrate her. Even with a son, Peninna would probably still roar over her life. So what's going on? How do we sense this pivot? Because there is a change in our story but but why? Why is there a change in the story? We actually catch it, but man, you could smoke right past it if you're not looking. In verse 9, it says it for us, Hannah stood up. She rose. She rose. Now, when we read that, when we read that, we think, and there's a reason it says this. It's not telling her that she got up off the couch. She got up off the couch. She got up out of the chair, and she went and did something. That's what, that's, that's what we do. I rose, and I went to the fridge to get a snack, right? But when it says rise here, it means that she resolved, She asserted, she pivoted from a place of anguish. That's what is happening here. She had come to the place where she was at peace. She had come to the place where she was good with God doing as he saw fit for his glory, not hers. She'd gotten there. She'd let go of her need to be valuable as culture sees her as valuable. She'd come to this place, this beautiful place of trusting God that he would do what was best She was okay, whether she got what she really wanted or she didn't. She was fine. I don't know what the prayers would have sounded like besides what is written down. I'm sure it was longer than a couple sentences. I've had prayers like this. Maybe you have too. Lord, I've wanted what I've wanted for so long. I think I've wanted it for the wrong reason, though. I've wanted what I've wanted for so long, but probably not correctly. So I yield. I relent. You do as you see fit. I'm good with whatever you decide to do. Friend, when you come to the place of this unfettered trust, you're able to enter and leave a prayer like that with confidence and peace, with a rested soul, with a smile, the anguish doesn't really creep in on you anymore. Lord, I'm fine if you do this, I'm fine if you don't. I don't really want you to change my circumstances as much as my heart, that's what I want changed. There's nothing for me in this culture's value system. My life is not my own. The life that you've given me, it's worth laying down because of what you've done for me. So I submit my hopes. I submit my dreams. I surrender. I relent. Friends, when you come to this place where you trust the Lord, and I mean finally trust the Lord, you can find peace. But not when the womb opens. (laughs) That's not going to bring it. The Lord brings it. So let's see what happens in verse 18. We us skip down to verse 18. She said, may your servant... Now she's speaking with Eli here. May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. So she's not sad anymore. Verse 19, early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, And the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. This is what I want you to see in this, the format of happiness, peace, and prayer. Okay, because what we typically do is we say, if God gives me, grants me, or does not do to me what I really want, then I will be happy. Then I will be joyful. But here she does it before she gets anything. She finds peace and rest before which means her prayer is a little bit different. And let's find out what happens in this because it's not just a prayer that is noteworthy in a mom of anguish. It's actually the song that this produces. It produces a song in her, and it's one of the most noteworthy songs in your Bible. So in 1 Samuel 2, it's a longer one, so I'm just going to do the last two, yeah, verses 8 through 10. That's where we're going to jump in. So we're catching the very end of her song. She sings, He raises the poor from the dust. And lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth." He will give strength to the king and exalt the horn of the anointed. Okay, what we see here in this song is what we see in so many songs is juxtaposed realities, opposites put together, things moving in different directions but paired. We just call them juxtapositions. The needy are lifted, the, the mighty fall, the, the, the strong become weak, the weak become strong. We see it all the time, don't we, in the wisdom literature and the poetry of the Bible these juxtapositions, over and over again to remind you and me, because I need to be reminded, I don't know about you, that God doesn't function through obvious mechanics. He doesn't even function through obvious people. I mean, what what about the people in the Bible have been obvious to this point? I mean, Hannah's not obvious. She's not an obvious mom. David's not even an obvious king, right? Moses is not an obvious leader, nor is Abraham. Paul is not an obvious apostle at first, None of the mechanics by which God operates, none of the people through whom He operates are obvious to any degree. And this is most brilliantly displayed in the person of Christ, who for you and me is the ultimate juxtaposition. He's man and He's God. And he's grace and He's justice. And He's both at the same time. Our ultimate juxtaposition. He doesn't come as some national war hero with trumpets and a gold chariot, with everybody bowing down as he flips over the oppression of the Roman army. He doesn't do that. He comes in an unknown carpenter from a nowhere town on the back of a donkey. He doesn't float around with a scepter. He's not carrying a scepter around. He's carrying a cross. He doesn't accomplish his will with brute strength. He accomplishes it with weakness and submission. That's the story of the gospel. We see this juxtaposed song here, and it is meant, it is for New Testament readers, for you and me, it is meant for us to go, wait, I've heard something like this before, and you have. A thousand years later, the same song, right? And we see it from Mary, the mother of Jesus. She built her song, what people call the Magnificat, she built it off of Hannah's song, which she would have known and she goes back. And this is what it says in Luke. So if you have a Bible, you could turn there. Again, I'm reading out of a different version than what you have in your hands. But in Luke 1, I'm going to jump in verse 51. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things but he has sent the rich away empty." Again, we see this, more juxtapositions, more of God working in non-ordinary, non-obvious ways for his own glory. And this time it's gonna shine through in a really not obvious young woman to produce a king that is gonna be not obvious. A child comes miraculously through Mary just like Hannah. It'll be in obscurity just like Hannah this child will be dedicated to ministry, just like Hannah. Two women singing a song and and being miraculously able to carry a child that they won't get to keep, either one of them. It's fascinating to me, the symmetry of the Bible and how kind God is to show us little breadcrumbs here and there to just awaken our imagination, to see and connect dots. So I love, I love finding these little moments in the Bible. But Jesus would come to confound the strong and raise up many from the ash heap. He's still doing it. The greatest juxtaposition in the world is that brute force would find Christ so that grace and mercy would find us. It's a story of juxtaposition. And aren't you glad for it? Aren't you glad that the gospel is not a story of power just for the powerful or a story of perfect beauty just for the perfectly beautiful? I'm glad that it is like this. So how do we take a gospel that is not obvious and is built on the framework of juxtaposition, shown in a song, two songs, a thousand years apart about women who are miraculously carrying a child, how does it help us step into the week we're about to step into, right? I think it requires some change in you and me, some growth in a day where cultural values are illustrated far beyond the voice of Peninnah. We see it in 4K all the time. Can't catch a commercial or a show. We see it in living color. As vivid as your imagination can conceive, we see it. This is what it takes to be enough. Do you want to be enough, significant, worth something? This is what you need to do. We have to change. I mean, it's on social media. It's in media. And I think the first step to changing, and there's probably three quick ones. I'm going to move through these fast. The first one is just to be honest with yourself on where you feel invisible and insignificant. Be honest. I just think we lie to ourselves here a lot. and We pretend it's not really affecting us, right? But every culture, and we've already established this, every culture and every person in a culture has a panina telling you that you are worthless, that you've got no value. And year after year after year, it taunts you into a place of anguish. And this is what it really does as well. After a while, it reshapes your values. It reshapes who you are. It reshapes everything, it reshapes our life, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we spend our words, how we spend our imagination, our hopes and our dreams, it reshapes our life. Why? Because we say that thing is valuable to me. Why is that valuable to you? Because culture says this is what it takes to be enough. This is what it takes to be enough. So we have to spot what that is. That's not always easy, it's not always easy. The second thing is we need to rise. She arose. She stood up. There was a pivot. There was this moment of resolve that she experienced. And we have to do this. And for you and me, I think it looks a little bit different because we're on an opposite side of the cross. It means preaching the gospel to the very thing that's causing us anxiety and anguish. To preach and apply the gospel to it. Something is telling you that you are worthless until you make it to this echelon professionally until you have kids that can accomplish these things, right, that you are worthless until you look a certain way, sound a certain way, have done certain things. The gospel says something very different. And if we're not preaching God's Word to ourselves, all we're going to hear are the words of the culture, we, the, the vacuum that it produces when we just get rid of it. If it's not good enough to just say, culture is a liar, and then just go on about your day. You've just created a vacuum, and that culture is too thick. The, the tide is too high. You have, to, you have to oppose it. You have to contend with it, and that is with the gospel. What worth comes not from what we gain, but because Jesus felt anguish to rescue us from our ultimate anguish. Jesus emptied himself to the place of anguish to bring us close to God himself, and in a culture where our values shift and change. And not just shifting and changing by the year, but as you age, your values will shift and change. The things that were valuable to you that said, I've made it when you were 20, it doesn't look like that when you're 40. It changes. It's a a shifty landscape. You have to continually preach the gospel. And this is how you'll know when you're doing a good job of that. It reshapes your values again. It reshapes how you use your money, your time, your words, your imagination, your dreams, your hopes. It reshapes everything right? I think the third thing we do is we just let go. This is harder. We need the Holy Spirit to bring us to this place. We don't achieve this place. This is a gift of God that when we get here, we can ask for it. And God is sure to give us these things because He's good to us. But this place where we could say, I yield. I yield. Whether you give this thing to me or not, I'm on board. I'm team Jesus right now. There's nothing for me here in this world that's better than you. You can have everything. This life does not belong to me. I'm a traveler. I'm a sojourner. I'm here for a wink, and then I'm in forever. This is nothing. I'm here for just a moment. So I surrender. I submit. Do as you see fit. And you know how often you have to pray that prayer? A thousand times a day. A thousand times a day. And that's how we change. That's how we change. But listen, I know not everybody here loves Jesus. I know that we have people that are watching, whether you're here or you're online, When you are far from Christ, I want to pick out one line in the song of Hannah that I think might be more pertinent to you. It starts this way, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. The Lord will judge. This is a righteous judgment, by the way, that is perfect. All wrongs will be seen and weighed, all of them. This happens or God is not God. That we know. Christ receives anguish, however, so we can escape our own anguish. This is a piece of the gospel. Friend, let me tell you, the world is a liar when it tells you that heaven is here. Heaven is far from here. Isn't that? where our king is. That's where he is. And then he fi- she finishes the song with this last line, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Again, it's a throwaway line to our culture. But I want, I want you to know, there were no kings at this time. There was no talk of any kings. There's no kingly line set up. She just tossed this in there. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That word anointed means Messiah. Hannah was singing a song to look forward to Christ, our ultimate king, our ultimate Messiah. That's what's happening here. The ultimate juxtaposition one who was weak and powerless and yet powerful and defeated death. One who was a cultural defect and born of a major, killed on an excluded hill of criminals. He'd bring salvation. But it wouldn't be by strength. It would be by grace, by weakness, by submission. I would submit to you that you would submit to him. That would be my message to you, that you would submit to him, that you would give your life, that you would yield, that you would have a place where you say, that's it. I'm done pushing. I'm done asking for the wrong things for the wrong reasons. I'm done ascribing value to things that are going to just go away or shift. Lord, you are the only one. Only you can make me feel significant and content and satisfied. Outside you, it's just not going to happen. That's what I would submit.